teams wins a championship. I'm thinking about all the new bandwagon Kansas City Royal fans that are out there. But I, I know a few who've been there the whole time. And it brings me hope as a Cub fan that maybe that'll be my day sometime too. But, but to see uh, what's going on in Kansas City, I mean, that is, that is really cool, bringing a lot of happiness. Maybe it's seeing our loved ones, our kids succeed and thrive. Maybe it's financial security. Maybe it's lots of different things when we think of what makes us happy. And I think it's fair to say that everybody wants to be happy. We want happiness in our lives. And you can even read the founding document of our nation, the Declaration of Independence, and recall that Thomas Jefferson wrote that we have three inalienable rights. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of what? Yes, we treat that as a right. We treat that as something we should expect. But I think I want to go a little deeper than happiness with this story because I think happiness is only half of the picture of what God intends us to be and what he intends us to feel. Because you see, in today's culture, I think that the need for happiness has maybe gone to some unhealthy levels at some times. I think happiness sometimes comes in the name of self-centeredness. And in fact, there's been psychological studies in our culture to see kind of what's going on and what, ma- what makes people tick. And here are two things that psychologists are finding out about our psyche when it comes to happiness. And see if this sounds familiar to our culture. We pursue sensual pleasures and material success for the wrong reasons. So we pursue things for us, to make us happy. We misjudge, now think about this one, we misjudge how near-term events will affect our long-term happiness. We misjudge how near-term events will affect our long-term happiness. Do you want to see that played out in a month? It's called Black Friday. (laughs) That's the whole advertising industry is based on our constant need to be gratified. And I've always wondered, if Black Friday was so great and successful, why do we always have to have another one the following year? Wouldn't it have gratified us the one time that we indulged in it? You see, we're becoming, and I think we have a culture that more and more is seeking and needing immediate gratification. And we're calling it happiness when really it's gratifying ourselves. And so the consequence is we spend money, we collect things, we position our lives and our relationships, and we seek new experiences all in the hopes of finding and maintaining personal happiness. What do I feel like doing? What do I need? But here's the rub. If our happiness depends on our circumstances, what happens when our toys rust and get boring? What happens when a loved one passes away or when a trusted friend lets us down? What happens when our savings account gets an unexpected hit or our career ambitions stall or when our kids struggle or when our health deteriorates? How do we respond to the pressures and the difficulties of life? And why do we have a country that is so abundant in resources, yet we have so many people who are unhappy or so emotionally unhealthy? I think these are very important questions for the church to address. They're very important questions for us to think about as we examine our lives and our relationships. And that's why I believe that the letter of Philippians is so significant to our lives today. And it's so informative in helping us live meaningful and purposeful lives. That's our goal out of all of this. That's why we gather every week to grow and go. 
And so we learn more about ourselves as we study, and this is exactly what this letter is going to help us do, to be reminded daily of how important it is in our lives to live it with a sense of joy. In the book of Philippians, Paul thinks deeply, and you'll see as we study this, he writes eloquently about living joy-filled lives, lives which are different from having mere happiness. When we understand this difference, and when we learn how to apply joy to all of our circumstances, it is life-changing, and it becomes part of our journey of faith. How many of you are familiar with Lord of the Rings? How can you not be in this culture? Lord of the Rings ring a bell? Chronicles of Narnia ring a bell? All right, we know them by the movies, but back in the 40s and 50s, these were very popular books. They were written by two gentlemen, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. And they were very close friends. They were professors at Cambridge in England. And they spent their lives, they invested their lives once they became Christians. They invested their lives into creating literature, to creating stories that gave expression for what it means to search for and find joy. And they believe both, and you can see it in all of their writings, that the ultimate discovery of joy comes in our place with Christ. Our place as we look heavenward. They believe that we have this deep-seated longing, each one of us does, and we're questing for something, and that something is heaven. We're wired to be questing that ultimate goal. And so you'll find three themes in their writings, and you'll probably, as you think back to those stories that you read or you think back to the movies that you've seen, you'll see these themes if you really look closely. They think about the theme of the pilgrim, That's appropriate, it's coming up here in a month, but there's the theme of the pilgrim, that is that searcher, that longer for something to go home. And there are 18 times where we learn about Frodo trying to get to his hobbit home. Now the symbolism is that home is heaven. So there's the theme of the pilgrim. There's also the simple theme of story. For those of you who read bedtime stories to kids, if you come across a really good one, what do they always ask? Kate always does, read it again, read it again, read it again. You know why? When you read a bedtime story to a child and they want it to be read again, they are longing for the world that is created in that story. They're longing for that world, and it awakens them to the only other world they want to know. So we have this longing about our story and how we fit into this world and where we're heading. There's a theme of story. And finally, and this is another big one, it's a huge part of what makes us human, it's the theme of love and connecting. When a baby cries, C.S. Lewis says, he's hungry for food. But when we are lonely, we're hungry for connection. So what does that tell us about our nature? It tells us that we are relational beings. We're on a pilgrimage, we're heading home, and we're searching not only for God, but we're doing it with each other. It ties into everything we talked about for the last two months when we talked about building community. All of these are heaven-like longings. They're dominant themes in this literature. And it is what it means to be a human being and what it is what it means to be a creation of God. C.S. Lewis defines joy, and this is a key piece of what we're going to be looking at. He defines joy as finding our heart's deepest longing. In fact, he wrote this. He says, joy is a desire that produces sustained happiness to the point where you are compelled to savor it and share it with others. 
Joy, in my sense, has one characteristic, the fact that anyone who has experienced it will want it again. And here is the key. And here's the key to opening up Paul's letter. Here's our key to understanding what this looks like. Because wouldn't we all want more joy in our lives? Well, here's the key that unlocks that. As we study this letter, as we go deep inside it each week with the message, and each time you're gathering in your life groups, each time you're reading through this, uh, these four chapters in the next four weeks, there is only one way that we can truly find the joy that Paul is describing and that is that we are rooted in Christ, and we are anchored to each other in being rooted to him. And that's why Paul writes in our guiding verse for today's lesson, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Huge. And each of the next four weeks, we are going to look at finding joy in different circumstances, and we're going to gather this by reading and absorbing and diving deeply into this letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians. And our life group study and the conversations that we want to generate from them are going to tie directly to four main ideas. This week, it's joy and suffering or through difficult circumstances. That's what this whole message is about to become. Next week, we're going to look deeply into the joy in serving. Week three, November 9th, we are going to look at the joy in pursuing God. And finally, to wrap up the series, we're going to be talking about the joy in giving, Philippians 4. As Josh mentioned, we're very excited about this series. We're very excited to see what can blossom from a deep study in the book of Philippians. So here's a little background and context of this letter. It was written to the church at Philippi. Paul and his companions planted this church on his second missionary journey, and you can read more about it in Acts 16, starting with verse 11. So if you want to learn a little bit more about when this church was planted, some of the dynamics around it, you can find it in the book of Acts. Philippi, just as a side note, was the first church established on the European continent. So kids, if that gives you something to stump your social, study, social studies teachers with, go for it. It's the first church that was planted in the European continent. This letter to that church was written 61 AD. It was written in 61 AD, and here is from where it was written. It was written from Rome during Paul's imprisonment. He is literally, and you'll see this as you go through the letter, he is literally writing from prison, and he is in chains. And so his purpose in writing this, because anything we correspond, there's a purpose to it. Here's his purpose. His purpose is to thank the Philippians, the members of this church in Philippi, for the gift that they had sent to Paul through Epaphroditus. We'll see him in chapter 4. And he writes this to strengthen his belie those believers by showing them that true joy comes from Christ alone. And that's the same message that we can take here through this study. The Philippian church had sent a gift to Paul with Epaphroditus. And this entire letter that he has now written, this thing that we're just about ready to study deeply, was written so that Paul could thank them for their gifts to him during his imprisonment. And he wrote it to encourage them in their faith, their day-to-day -day walk. I'm here to encourage you. I'm here to build joy into your lives. And this is why he is very clear in the first chapter that he believed his chains, these things that were holding him back, were being served to advance the gospel. 
So as we dive into this this morning, I want to open with this question. Are any of you bound by any chains today? Are you bound by anything? Have you suffered a recent setback in some way? Are you struggling with anything? An unexpected misfortune that maybe has come your way. Are there any things right now that are just holding you in chains? Chances are if you're experiencing something like this today, or if you're not experiencing something like this today, you have before, and it's very well possible that most all of us will be facing something down the road. So this is encouragement for us. It's a way for us to gather how do we prepare for tough times? How do we prepare to go through difficult circumstances? And this is the challenging part of living in a world yet to be restored by Christ's return. The simple fact is we're going to face struggles, and we're going to face challenges, and we're going to have difficult circumstances. The key is how do we respond? How do we continue to maintain a joyful nature when things get tough? That's what chapter 1 is all going to be about. So how do we respond to suffering and adversity? And I think it is here where Paul has great credibility when he talks about joy. Because he's writing about this as he has literally had everything taken away from him. He is sitting in jail, and he's sitting in chains, and everything has been stripped from him. And yet he continues, and you will see this as you go through this letter, the joy that he speaks of. So here are the four key applications for handling difficulty and suffering. I want to start with Philippians 1, 9 through 11. And this one I want to sort of treat as our preventative verse. This is maybe something that can help us avoid some of the suffering that comes our way. Listen to what Paul says. He says, and this is my prayer. Listen carefully here. This is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. And I underlined this for myself. You might want to underline that as well or note this in your your Bibles. So that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. We can use, point number one, discernment to prepare us for difficult circumstances. We all know what discernment means, I think. It means our ability to apply wisdom the ability to make a good, wise choice. Just curious, and you don't have to raise your hands, but have you ever made a choice or a decision that brought difficulty to yourself or to someone else? What Paul is encouraging his friends in Philippi to consider is, and these are the key words, make yourself pure and blameless before Christ. Follow his example. What would the world look like if each one of us, on a daily basis, simply had this prayer? Father, this day, give me the ability to discern and make wise, pure, and blameless choices. What does that look like if if, if a group of people commit to doing that? I remember many, many, many years ago, probably about 1994. Nice had a hair back then. I was 1994. I think even had a mullet. And I was finishing college that summer, and I had a job at MCI. If you remember the old telemarketing days, someone would call you up, hey, this is Jeff from MCI, we'd like to lower your long distance. Remember all those annoying people? I was one of them. I was one of them for a whole summer. It helped me finish off and paying off for the rest of my uh, last year of schooling. 
And one night I had to work, and I worked sales. So every night from 5 to 10, I dialed people up, and I asked them if they'd like to try MCI long-distance service. I know we have cell phones now. This seems like eons ago. If you're, if you're younger than 20, you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. But 20 years ago, I was involved in trying to sell people long-distance service and get them to switch to MCI. And as you can probably imagine, during the summer, that got a little bit of a grind. So one night, my friend Jason Kleist and I decided... Um, he was working somewhere else. We decided, we don't want to go to work tonight. We want to go fishing out on the river. So we hatched a plan, and you can probably figure where this is going. But we hatched a plan that we were just going to skip work. And we were going to gather with some of our buddies. We are going to get on a boat, and we were just going to float on down the river, do some fishing, hang out, have a great time. The only problem was on that particular week, I was staying with my grandma and grandpa Skidmore. And Grandma Skidmore ran a pretty tight ship in her house. And I realized that I was not going to be able to simply tell her I'm not going to work tonight. So as you can imagine, now one poor choice after another is going to start mounting. I told my grandma that I was heading to work. But knowing that I was not going to work, I left early to just make her think that I was and I was going to kill some time and meet up Jason at the river. The problem is Jason's a big practical joker. So he's thinking I'm home around 5 o'clock because we weren't going to meet till 7. So he calls my grandparents' house, and he pretends to be my boss and wants to know where I'm at. The problem is I'm not there. And there are no cell phones in 1994 to stay in touch with each other. So I show up at 7 o'clock, ready to have a great time fishing, heading down the river, and Jason says, hey, I'm really sorry, but I think I really freaked your grandma out. Okay, what? Well, I called her and pretended like I was your boss, and I wanted to know why you weren't at work. And my heart just sank. (laughs) So... So I left the boat, I headed home, and sure enough, by that time, Grandma had called up to work because she was worried about where I was, and now I got my boss and my grandma comparing notes while I'm I'm out fishing. (laughs) And for those of you who, my mom is just mortified as I'm telling this story, but, (laughs) but as you can imagine, all of you remember how sweet Mrs. Skidmore was, and she was every bit of that. But I'm here to tell you, if you crossed her, there was suffering, all right? (laughs) Even, even if you were 22 years old. So I go home, and she's obviously and and justifiably furious with me. She's worried. She didn't know where I was. Then she found out that I lied to her, and the whole thing spiraled out of control. And the very next thing I had to do was the next day go to my workplace and explain to my supervisor why I lied. All I wanted to do, all that I wanted to do was just one night I just wanted to go out and hang out and not go to work, but I made several poor choices that led me to a path that was extremely painful. It brought a lot of suffering, and i got to be honest with you, even if I had gotten away with it, I think in my conscience I still would have been bothered enough by it that I would have been carrying that around. You see, on that particular day, I began a series of unfortunate decisions that were neither pure nor blameless. And I paid the consequences for them. Quite frankly, I disobeyed. (laughs) I did something that was wrong. Now, thankfully, my supervisor sat me down and said, Jeff, we've had a great summer. Just don't do this again. He was was very grace-filled at that moment. But I let a lot of people down by simply making a poor choice. I made a poor choice that was not consistent with the way that Jesus' example would be. The way that Paul's example is, is he's exhorting the Philippians, live lives that are pure and blameless. Because if you do, you're going to save yourself from a lot of suffering that you don't have to go through. So that's verse and key point number one. Make choices that are blameless. Make choices that are pure. We just finished two audits 
um, between our schools. And I'll, if anyone's ever been through an audit, anyone who's done any business, and I don't mean to put down any accountants in here, but they're not the happiest people usually when they come and visit. No offense to anybody. They're very serious, though. And I try to make small talk with them, and they, maybe I'm just not as funny as I think I am, but I don't get a lot of response out of them. Well, they're going through $9 million worth of stuff. And I remember the first time I had to go through one of these, I was very nervous. And I had a colleague friend of mine, a veteran soup, he said, you know, Jeff, here's the deal. If you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear. When someone comes and audits you, if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear. And so my encouragement for all of us before we get off of this point is simply this. Let's try as best we can, as humbly as we can, with as much grace from God as we can, to live lives where we have nothing to hide. Because if we have nothing to hide, we have nothing to fear. And guess what? If there is something that you're hiding, bring the light on it. Get past it. Ask the forgiveness that you need forgiven. Deal with it however you have to deal with. But live your life in a way where you don't have to hide anything. Because when you're hiding things, it absolutely steals your joy. Because you're spending all your time worrying about all the cover-ups and all of the ways to keep this lie going or this, this, this thing you're hiding going. And you can't experience joy. You can't have both at the same time. Put yourself in a position. We put ourselves in position to live lives that are blameless, to live lives that are pure. Isn't that wonderful wisdom? This is what Paul is starting off the very front of the letter with. Let me first of all start by saying how you can avoid suffering. You know, if I had any advice for an 18-year-old kid if they were leaving high school, I'd simply say this. Make every choice from here on out as if you want to run for public office when you're 40. Because you know how it goes, it's election season, and all we're hearing about is all the dirt that everyone's digging up on each other. How about we just start by living our lives in ways that, no, hey, I got nothing to hide. Go see. Every choice we make has consequences. And Paul very wisely opens this letter, this letter of joy and encouragement, saying, your ultimate joy is rooted in making pure and blameless decisions following the example of Christ. Number two, and now two through four, get a little more in-depth because simply this. You can make all the choices in the world that are right. You can make all the choices that you can that are pure. But there are simply going to be circumstances that are still going to knock you off your feet. There are still going to be times when you're going to have to face difficult circumstances. And I want to read this verse with you, Philippians 1.19. When this happens, we can expect deliverance. We'll put that up in a second. But we can expect deliverance through difficult circumstances. I want you to have that assurance. For I know, Paul writes, that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. And here's the key point. We will face difficulties in this life. And here's Paul's promise. You will be delivered through faith in Christ, as you go through them. Whether it's financial stress, a job loss, an unexpected medical diagnosis that threatens your life or someone that you love, walking with your children when they're expressing sadness or pain, we all have difficult circumstances presented to us. Some of you are probably walking through difficult things right now. And Paul says, as he sits there in chains, that even when he has had everything taken from him, he believed that there were three things that would deliver him. And you can see it right there in, in, in 119. He believed that the prayers of others, the prayers of himself, and God's provision through those prayers would 
bring deliverance for him. And I want to give you this encouragement this morning. We can have joy in tough times because in those times, it's, I believe, when God, through the Holy Spirit, works the strongest. And he works the strongest when we commit to prayer. And I believe God places people in our lives for just such tough circumstances. That's why we've spent so much time investing in community so that no one has to go through anything alone. So that we can bring prayers and petitions to God on behalf of each other. And so that we can be literally hands and feet of Jesus to those who are in need. I think we have to continue to invest in that. And he someday, and maybe right now is, placing us with all of our circumstances in someone else's life so we can help him. We ha- help them. We have to be open to those scenarios. I saw and was part of a wonderful, powerful night on Thursday. We were at the Celebrate Recovery potluck. And um, it was alluded to earlier in Sunday school, but I'm going to tell you something. That, that's community. You know, sometimes we hear that hurting people hurt people. You've ever heard that? I'm going to give you a twist on that. Changed people help change people. And when I sat and watched what's going on with that ministry, and I saw how people's lives were literally and have been literally saved from addiction, I see the power in that community. And I think each one of us can take a look back on a tough circumstance in our lives, and we can say this if we're honest with ourselves. You know what? God delivered me from something I never thought I could have endured. I went through something so difficult, so tough, so painful, and God delivered me. And very likely, he helped deliver me through the love of other people. And someday, he may be using you and that part of your story that you have felt with suffering and pain, and he may use you to encourage someone else who's going through that exact same thing. We become open to that. That's critically important. So, first of all, we discern so we can be pure and blameless. Number two, when we're going through hard things, even if they're not our own fault, we can pray for deliverance. And I would encourage you this, in your life groups this week, if you're going through something tough, ask your life group, will you help pray with me? Will you pray for me? Pray for deliverance and pray for growth. Help me grow through this. Help me understand and help me feel deliverance from whatever is afflicting. Number three, we can control our conduct through difficult circumstances. Never forget that. No matter what we go through, no matter what frustrations or adversity, we still can control our conduct. Philippians 1.27, Paul says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Conduct yourself in fun circumstances, happy circumstances. Paul says all circumstances. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. One of my favorite coaches in this world is a gentleman by the name of Tony Dungy. He coached the Buccaneers. He coached the Indianapolis Colts to a Super Bowl. And now he's a commentator on NBC. But Tony Dungy had a long, hard road to get to where he got. He first of all had to overcome the stigma as an African-American of being an NFL coach. Then he got his shot with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and for several years he would get them so close to the Super Bowl, and they'd always get beat. The year that he was fired from Tampa Bay, the next year they won the Super Bowl. 
And then year after year after year after year, until they finally won it with Peyton Manning, he had the same experience in Indianapolis. And everyone began to question, can this guy ever win the big game? And he finally did. But he always said this, whether I ever got to a Super Bowl or not, it wasn't going to define who I was. It wasn't going to define who I was as a man. It wasn't going to define who I was as a Christ follower. And sadly enough, on the year, in the year that his team won the Super Bowl, he lost his son. And so you talk about going through adversity and tough times. And I want to share with you what I recently heard him say in an interview. He quotes Paul from Ephesians 4, 2, and 3. Same writer who writes Ephesians. And he said, that, this verse says this, With all the lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of spirit in the bond of peace. Here's what Tony Dungy says about this verse. It's one of his life verses. I think it's so powerful. Tony says, when things aren't going so well, I ask myself, am I operating in humility? I have begun to examine myself to see if I am truly following this scripture, what Paul is saying. And then it becomes less, and listen to this, it becomes less about the circumstance that is challenging me and more about me being in alignment with the word and abiding with Jesus. That's a guy I'd love having coaching my kids. Think about that. It doesn't matter what circumstance comes to me. It's whatever, not, it doesn't matter what's challenging me. What I'm more concerned with is when I respond to it, am I in alignment with the word of God? Am I abiding with Jesus? That's exactly what Paul is talking about when he writes this first chapter. Our greatest testimony can be how we handle adversity. I, uh, I just think that is such a powerful thing to remember. How we handle adversity says a lot about our witness. says a lot about our faith. One of the greatest ways that we can damage our witness to Christ is when we respond to every little bump in the road, every little challenge, every little frustration with complaining and finger pointing. It kills our witness. It just kills us. Let's be a church that faces together any challenge that we each other have. Let's be that church that surrounds each other, that faces it with strength, that faces it with the kind of grace and the kind of strength that Jesus lived and that Jesus took to the cross. Finally, number four, as we wrap up, we can embrace the call to suffer with Christ and for the cause of Christ. This is so critical to remember, and I think sometimes because we have all these, these freedoms that are so blessing, that are such blessings to us, we sort of lose sight of what other Christians face in the rest of the world. Paul writes this, and we need to take this seriously. For it has been granted, this is Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him. Okay, we believe, but did you catch the enjoinder here? But also to suffer for him. All around this world, there are men and women and children who are literally putting their lives on the line to just simply say that they follow Christ. And sometimes we lose sight of that. We have to always remember that when we pick up our cross, there could be and will be some suffering that comes along with us. And that's part of our walk, but it's also what draws us closer to our dependence on Christ. Proclaiming Christ means showing that to believe in and follow him is not only something right and true, but also something beautiful, capable of filling us with life and new splendor and profound joy, even in the midst of difficulties. 
You know, I think the job of a Christ follower, our number one commitment, is to convey that to follow Christ, to obey his teachings, will lead us to profound joy, even in the midst of great difficulties. That's exactly what Paul is talking about. And the only means that we can effectively do this is to live our own life within the joy of Jesus and the blessings we receive. And I think there comes a point in our walk when there is just a peace, when we realize that our lives, my life is not my own. We're not made for this world. We have that longing that C.S. Lewis talked about. We have that longing for the world after. And in the meantime, we're doing everything we can to proclaim and to share the gospel here to make a difference. So this is our series. These are our outcomes. I want us to be a church that experiences true joy together. The world outside these walls, they need to feel our love. They need to be blessed by our actions and our service, but they absolutely need to see our joy. And I pray that we can grow in that joy in the next weeks ahead. Will you close with me in prayer? Father God, we are just so thankful for the blessings um, that you provide us. We are so thankful for the freedoms that we have in, in the United States to uh, just have the freedom to worship, the freedom to gather. But Father, we also recognize that around this world there are people who are suffering for simply believing in you. Father, I just pray that we can focus our hearts and our attention on all the needs that are around us. Father, if anyone is dealing with a difficult circumstance today, Father, I pray that they can bring that to one of us, that we can pray with them, that we can figure out ways to help. And Father, I just pray that you continue to grow in us that sense of joy that comes from knowing we have eternal salvation with you once we commit, once we commit our lives to you. We thank you for all your blessings. We thank you for your great promises. And we thank you for this community right here. Help us go continue to impact the world around us. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.